welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you, Tom. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Ian Harris from Sydney, Australia. And I'll let him introduce himself because he has a CV that's about 25 or 30 pages long, but a very accomplished person, very conscious, is very um, well-intentioned in his work, and I'll let him explain that. But I met him through a book that I read called Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo, and I was impressed, and I emailed him. He emailed me back with a couple of conversations, but he's really spent a remarkable amount of time in all medical fields, not just orthopedics, looking at the different procedures that have been document, documented to be ineffective, yet we still keep performing them. And that's a, really leads into the fact that I am publishing a book in the fall called, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And it goes into all the variables that affect the outcomes of surgery. And Dr. Harris will point out what I already know is that there's a paper out of Baltimore that shows, shows that only 10% of spine surgeons are acknowledging the data before they recommend doing spine surgery. Thank you, Dr. Welk. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ian Harris. Ian, thanks for being on the show. And if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing, we would appreciate it. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, yes, I'm a, an orthopedic surgeon in practice in Sydney, Australia. But um, also, as my career progresses, I'm becoming more and more of, a, of an academic and a researcher. Um, I was a spine surgeon, um, and I'm still a general orthopedic surgeon. But uh, the majority of my time now is taken up by doing uh, research, looking mainly into the effectiveness of surgery or the lack thereof. So I'll do systematic reviews, randomized trials, and we're even starting to do some uh, placebo surgery trials here in Australia okay. as well. Is there, your, your research seems quite unique to me. Is there anybody else in the world that is focused on this as you are as far as procedures, about the effectiveness of different procedures? Uh, yes, there are. There's, there's a, a fairly you know, vibrant group of, of researchers worldwide who are starting to do this uh, more high-quality um, scientific uh, study of uh, surgery. So things like placebo-controlled trials, um, and so there's a handful of them in, say, uh, Scandinavia and the UK, I would say, uh, a little bit in Canada, um, and interest from, you know, many other countries, uh, including the US, but um, not much in the way of uh, placebo surgery trials coming out of there recently, although there have been, of course, in the past. Your perspective and focus is still quite unusual, and you're a surgeon who really believes that most surgeries should not be performed, and of course, when surgery needs to be done, why, as you know, it works beautifully. So, Ian, you were a spine surgeon, and just like myself, I'm sure you were relatively aggressive in performing surgery because you think it's the right thing to do. You're trained that way. You feel good about being proactive for your patient, and I actually, early in my career, I felt guilty, really felt guilty. I couldn't find a reason to perform surgery. Because I, I felt I was the last hope and, I, and I'm, I had to give the answer. So I'm really curious. I, I know my journey pretty well. I think most of my audience does too. But I'm really curious from your perspective how you went from being an active spine surgeon to going more of a research-based approach and started questioning what you were doing. 
Yeah, I guess um, my eyes were opened when I started to get into academia and I, I did a master's of uh, clinical epidemiology or evidence-based medicine. And I followed that up with a PhD in surgical outcomes. And I started to see that the real way to determine effectiveness was to test things in a proper scientific manner. And that up until now, the way I was determining effectiveness and the way my surgical colleagues were determining effectiveness was basically seeing if their patients felt better afterwards. And you soon realize that, that what we see as correlation, we are assuming is causation. So if I was doing uh, uh, back fusions on people with back pain and they were coming back sometime later saying they felt better, I was assuming it was because I had fused their back. And we now know that it's probably a lot of other things. It could have been the physiotherapy they had. It could have been just time itself. And unless you have a proper control group, you don't know whether the surgery you're doing is really effective at all. And this really came to light in the field of knee surgery where, you know, knee arthroscopy, you know, was and still may be the most common procedure done in orthopedics in the world. And it's done on a lot of degenerative worn out knees. Um, and we found out um, that it was not effective. Uh, there's been several placebo studies showing that the patients are no better off than, than having placebo. Right. Right. Yeah, I think with the arthroscopy course, I mean, it's expensive. There's some risk to it, but it's not nearly as risky as some of the bigger operations such as cardiac surgery and, and spine surgery. Um, I want to drill down on spine surgery in a big way in the second part of the interview, but I'm still curious that how many just ballpark, how many procedures have you looked at that you have documented to be basically ineffective? And just give us a sample list of maybe five or eight of those. Just, just list them. I'm just curious what you have found that simply doesn't work. Uh, in the field of orthopedics, well, I haven't done most of the research. I just, you know, review research that other people have done. But um, my particular area is um, uh, trauma. Uh, so uh, fractures. Um, and in the spine, we uh, reviewed the evidence on fixing spine fractures. And this is something that I thought uh, was uh, you know, completely necessary. I did a, a fellowship in the, in the uh, States and came back, um, you know, very keen to fuse all of the burst fractures, which are the most common type of uh, spine fracture that we see. Um, thinking that they all needed it. Um, but when you look at the literature and you look at the studies that compare treating it with surgery to treating it without surgery, there's really no difference except that the surgical treatment costs a lot more and is associated with more complications. Right. So that's a eye-opener for me. Um, what, what, about, what about in other fields? I mean, you do some work in cardiac surgery. And, and, oh, yeah. You know. I mean, the, 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 probably one of the big ones in cardiac would be cardiac stenting. I mean, that is absolutely an, an epidemic. You know, there are so many cardiac stents done. And yet study after study, um, older studies and now more recent studies just published in the last year or two have shown that cardiac stenting for a narrowed coronary artery, not in the presence of a heart attack, in the presence of what we call stable angina, is no better than not stenting it. Um, and, and this has been shown over and over. And uh, 
I know personal examples of friends and I, and I see it happen where people go, go to get their heart tested. They have an angiogram that shows a narrowing and immediately the cardiologist says, well, we need to open up the narrowing. Um, and that kind of makes intuitive sense. It's very difficult to argue with that kind of logic. But when you think about it quite hard, um, it's kind of like, well, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense. There's, there's other things at play. And certainly the studies have shown that if you open up the uh, artery or if you don't open up the artery, it doesn't make any difference at all to their future risk of heart attack or death. Wow. And of course, all these procedures, I mean, with stents, I mean, you're putting up a catheter into the body, catheters break, they go into the wrong spot. And as you well know, nobody that undergoes surgery expects to have a complication, otherwise it wouldn't be a complication, right? And so there's such a such a casual approach to the complications not going to happen to me, but when it does happen, it's pretty devastating to put it mildly, especially when you know you had a choice about it. When, when I see a patient who really had a choice about this doing on semi-elective surgery, they end up with a significant complication, they're pretty frustrated. That would be the understatement. They're pretty frustrated with what happened, it, particularly at themselves for making that decision in the first place. Um, I just want to touch on total knees for a second. There's some data coming out now that total, when I was a resident 30 years ago plus, why we weren't putting in total joints in people less than 70 years old, almost empirically. We just felt there was too much risk of things loosening, et cetera. They've been done increasingly younger active patients. And I know in the knee replacement literature, particularly that the younger patients in their 50s and 60s that are getting knee replacements aren't that happy. Is that true? Yes, uh, the the case of total knee replacements is an interesting one because it, it, historically it came along a little later than total hip replacement. Right. And total hip replacement was and is a very successful operation. Um, the satisfaction rates are very high in the order of sort of 95%, and it works very well for an arthritic hip. So that was sort of applied to the knee. But for whatever reason, the satisfaction rates have never been as high for knee replacement. And they sit often around 80%. So you get around 20% of people who are not satisfied with the results of the knee replacement, which is a fairly high number. Right. And, and the, the difficulty is determining why that is. And, and is it because they are being overdone? Certainly, there's a lot of variation in the rates of surgery when you compare, for example, OECD countries uh, you know, you get countries like our countries, the US and Australia have very high rates of knee replacement compared to, you know, other European countries, uh, uh, you know, Canada, New Zealand, you know, and, and, and other similar countries that really shouldn't have a, a wildly different rate of surgery. Right. Well, it's interesting, which I read a paper about five years ago, which actually a couple papers, which several people said to me, and I didn't realize this, I was trained as every other orthopedic surgeon where you have bone and bone arthritis, you just fix it. That's just, just what you do, right? And there's two papers that were very nicely done that show that the severity of arthritis did not correlate with the severity of the pain. In other words, people with bone and bone arthritis often would not have pain. In fact, usually wouldn't have pain. People with the most pain often had minimal arthritis. The correlation was very low. But they actually found out what it was correlated was a simple five-point stress scale. So if they're under stress, knees hurt. If they were, actually it was for knees, hips, and total shoulders. And it was interesting because it really was 
correlated with a very simple stress scale as far as the degree of pain. But going back to the cardiac stent thing, what, what struck me is that you have a narrowing of the coronary artery. It seems normal that you should, or it seems logical you should go ahead and open it back up again. And with spinal stenosis, the lumbar spine, what spinal stenosis is, is a narrowing of the spine. I just have people picture the narrow part of an hourglass. It's a combination of bones, ligaments, and disc material that squeezes in on the spinal nerves. And the spinal canal is normally about 50 millimeters in diameter. And usually at around eight or nine millimeters, people start getting symptoms in their legs. There's an operation where we simply open it up called a laminotomy or laminectomy. And people generally do pretty darn well. About seven years ago, I started noticing that if we did the prehab, which means we do a sleep, stress, exercise, et cetera, as we prepped our patient for surgery, we had over 100 patients that came in for their final preoperative visit. The pain was gone. They canceled their surgery. And what happened in my surgical practice, I was already quite conservative, but then all these surgical patients started canceling their surgery. My conversion rate to surgery dropped down to about 4.5%. I, I honestly could not make a living doing elective surgery. And so it was interesting, and even in spinal stenosis, which, and again, they would have done well with surgery. It would have been fine but they didn't want it or need it because their pain disappeared. Have you seen that observation in your practice or, or has that been talked about in the Australian world? Yeah, so that's a, a really uh, good question is about spinal stenosis because if you ask spinal surgeons, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you said to a group of spinal surgeons, you know, what's probably, you know, the, one of the most effective operations that you do? You know, and they'll probably say, you know, taking out a, a, a massive disc or um, doing a laminectomy for lumbar spine stenosis. I mean, right. that's, that's really bread and butter. Everybody sees that as a really effective operation. Now, when you look at the evidence for it, it isn't that clear. Right. Uh, people think it's, oh, well, 100% of them get better with surgery and no one will get better without surgery. And right. when you start looking at the high quality comparative studies, you're kind of like, well, hang on a minute, only 60-something percent of patients are getting better with surgery and 45% are getting better without surgery. This is not a, a huge difference. No. Uh, and so we're actually doing a placebo study of lumbar spine decompression for lumbar spine stenosis. Um, I, I, I'm embarrassed I didn't publish this paper. We, I actually collected the data. We <laughs> retired before I published the paper, but one of my fellows collected the data. We had 120 patients. We excluded soft disc ruptures. All these patients had radiculopathy or troubles walking called neurogenic claudication. And all the spinal canals had no cerebral spinal fluid on the nerve roots. So all the canals are actually eight millimeters or less. And some of the canals were as tight as four millimeters. And I was actually signing them up for surgery, had them on the schedule. I said, we're looking, we're gonna, the, the data says we need to prepare you for the surgery. So again, we dealt with the sleep, the stress, et cetera. And again, 120 of them canceled their surgery. It was unbelievable. And I had no idea. How did you treat them? How well, were they being? Well, you know, you're familiar with my book, Back of Control, A Surgeon's Rule My Body Chronic Pain. So the first thing we dealt with was sleep. And the data shows really clearly that if you deprive a person of one night's sleep, their pain threshold experimentally changes dramatically. A study out of Israel showed that lack of sleep actually induces chronic pain. So sleep is our number one. And then we just dealt with stress. And what would happen, we realized that people with spinal stenosis have had the stenosis for years. These are old findings. But something changed. 
And invariably, when we talked to these people just a little bit, we found that they were, they were undergoing severe, even extreme life stresses. And we would just wait it out with them, help them, give them some assistance, loss of a spouse, job, or really bad stuff. And once you get past the situational stress, pain disappeared. Yeah. You know, stress changes the body's chemistry and changes the pain threshold. And we found that was a big deal. We found that actually exercise helped. It was interesting enough. But yeah, just a combination of medication management, supporting them, but really understanding that the family issues, situation issues really flared up pre-existing conditions. One of my workout buddies just succinctly pointed out that when your pain threshold changes, of course, that bone spurs can be the first one to become symptomatic. And that's the, so our concept is that the whole pain threshold changes and then these bone spurs are the first ones to become symptomatic. But it was remarkable. We were just stunned with that. But again, my, the only reason I even made a living the last five years of my practice, because I was on call and we deal with a tremendous number of infected spines from the opioid epidemic. And I didn't feel very good about that. But for my elective practice, only four and a half percent of my patients went on to surgery of any kind. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's interesting because I, I think, um, and that's what's really I think eye opening when you look at these operations that that we've been, you know, we were trained to do and we've been doing for years, and and suddenly you turn around and you think, wow, I, I think it's probably not needed, um, right. uh, and that's difficult I think for the lay person for the patient to understand. It's very difficult for them to see. Um, hang on a minute, you've got an operation, a, a surgical procedure that people all over the world are performing and have been performing for years. It doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It must work. Right. Well, I, but also, as you know, as you go along in your surgical career, <clears throat> complications happen. And I had a patient develop a E. coli sepsis after a slight urinary retention after a laminectomy. She died. And I'll never forget that. that. So what happens, as you know, over time, you realize how real the complications are, how devastating they are. And I think most surgeons, as they go throughout their career, start to become more conservative anyway. Yes. But when it was devastating to me now, 30 years later, I, I think of probably at least 30 people with really bad complications that wouldn't even enter my surgical thinking now. We're so much better at rehab than we were that there's at least 30 people that simply had their lives really altered by an operation that was indicated, but guess what? They actually probably could have done just fine without it. Um, one person, when my worst one, a patient woke up blind and he had what's called a flatback syndrome where we, we fuse his lumbar spine, went beautifully, and he woke up blind, stone cold blind, never recovered his vision. And he came to me about six years later for a hardware problem and come to find out during the time that he decided to do the surgery, he's going through a horrendous divorce from a younger woman who was just really taking him to the cleaners, horrible stresses. But I didn't know that back then. Um, so I want to jump a little, little different topic before jumping into spine surgery for the second part of this um, conversation. Okay, the data shows, let's say cardiac disease and stents. We'll talk about spine fusions in a second. Knee arthroscopy. The data says these procedures don't work. Why do you think medicine keeps ignoring the data? Yeah, you're asking all the right questions, uh, David. <laughs> so, um, and I think it's because, uh, well, there's many reasons, but one reason that I am trying to tackle um, in my work is the lack of science. 
there's a lack of science um, in the public, but there's also a lack of science in surgeons themselves. They do not understand the biases and um, logical fallacies that they fall into when they um, are trying to determine the effectiveness of an operation. And like I said before, they, you know, for knee arthroscopy, for degenerative knees, it just doesn't work. But, but degenerative knees have very fluctuant symptoms where, you know, it'll be very painful for a while, then it won't be too bad for a couple of months, then it'll be, you know, bad for a week and then good for a year. It's all over the place. So if you see a patient who's particularly bad, their knee arthritis is really flared up for the last week or two, and that patient's going to get better. The patient isn't going to live their life with this flare-up. Right. Um, that's the definition of a flare-up. And so what happens is we see them during the flare-up, we operate on them, and then we see them sometime later. It could be a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, and when they're finally back to where they were before or their, their symptoms have improved. And we believe that those symptoms have improved because of what we did to them. Right. Not that they would have improved anyway. And this, of course you know, maybe it's a natural thing to think, but it's not a scientific way of thinking. Right. And a lot of surgeons just say, well, look, my patients get better. Um, and, and that's how I know it works. And I'll give you one example, which I think is a good one. I, I, just a few weeks ago, I was speaking at a spine conference in Melbourne and um, they got me to talk about lumbar spine stenosis and, and, and is it effective or isn't it? And do we need to do a placebo trial? And so I gave the evidence and I said, look, I don't think the evidence is very strong that this is really an effective operation and we need to do tests to find out if it is. And the rebuttal came with a young uh, spine surgeon who got up and said, um, we know that this procedure is effective. We don't need to test it anymore. We all know it's effective. And this is how we know. And then he showed a slide of a thank you card from a patient. <laughs> right and and that to me just summed it all up you know this is not a way of knowing things this is not a way of determining effectiveness and he just d doesn't understand that so no well let me tell you another quick story it's on my website it's called um a synovial cyst resolving i had a woman with a large synovial cyst which is a which is a growth within the spine that's benign it was very tight pushing on the nerves to her legs and i saw her once and i offered her surgery but said, you know, we have this process we go through, calm down the nervous system. We have a structured rehab program. I offered the option and she disappeared. And I get this beautiful letter eight months later thanking me for not doing the surgery. She was fine. Huge, huge synovial cyst. Structural problem. Same thank you letter that your surgeon got. But you're right. It's, that is not a good way of practicing medicine. Um, I'd like to finish off just briefly um, discussing some of the financial incentives that we're dealing with in modern medicine, particularly in the United yeah. States. Um, there's a saying that if the judge and the executioner were the same person, nary a neck would be spared. And right now, surgeons make about 80% of their income from surgery. There are also ones that decide that surgery should be done. I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that only 10% of surgeons are acknowledging the data and the variables that affect the outcomes, only 10%. As you also know, many surgeons make the decision to do surgery on the first visit. They don't know the patient. They don't really know what's going on in that person's life. They don't know the patient's state of body chemistry. They know nothing. And without belaboring the point too much, I think that's a conflict that is not solvable unless the whole 
structure of how we pay doctors has changed. And I think it's a serious enough problem that just has to be changed. But it's a huge conflict. Yeah. No, it is. And, and people often raise this. Now, I will admit, I often don't talk much, and I didn't mention it much in my book, about um, the financial incentive. Um, but I agree, it, is, it does play a role. Uh, we see it because we know when we change the financial incentives, the operations change accordingly. And we know that the rates of surgery in countries like the US and Germany, where surgeons are paid handsomely for, uh, for operating on people, that the operation rates are the highest in the world. And in countries that have a, a nationalized or public health system like Canada and the UK, the rates are some of the lowest in the world. So, you know, where's the truth? You know, it's, is it somewhere in between? Um, you know, either, either way, someone's wrong here. Right. Um, I mean, I honestly think that at the end of the day, the only way to solve this problem is that the surgeon actually can't be the one to make that final decision whether to undergo surgery. You're putting the patient at risk. You're using society's resources. And in spine surgery, particularly, the risks are pretty horrendous, especially now that we're doing bigger operations. And it's really a huge problem. The, the final part that I'd like to close the section out with is that we're also finding out that probably 70% of all the healthcare dollars are going to the administrators. It's a horrendous problem. And they're pushing us to be more and more productive, pushing procedures that actually been, have been documented to be ineffective. And it's really out of control. And actually, one of the risk factors of having a, an unnecessary surgery is having good insurance. And people feel safe having insurance is actually not totally true. And often procedures are geared towards people that have insurance. And the procedures are designed to be delivered that are paid for, not necessarily tied to effectiveness, which is a, again, another big problem, which I know you know yeah. very, very well. Yeah. But... Anyway, well, I'd like to, um, we're going to have another podcast here in a second that we'll, that we'll, we'll air a week later. We're going to talk about specifically spine surgery in the second half of this discussion. But I want to thank you very much um, for spending the time with us. Any particular final thoughts you have as far as just the general flavor of the world of, of procedures? <laughs> no, I think, I think we've covered it really well. I think, I think you asked the best questions, so I'll um, leave it at that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And we'll uh, be talking to Dr. Harris next week also about the, um, specifically about spine surgery. Thank you. Well, David and uh, Ian, thank you for joining us. And I want to remind our listeners to be returned next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And uh, another reminder to uh, visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.